Green Left Weekly Radio. There is one newspaper that is independent of powerful interests, and that's Green Left Weekly. It's a people's voice committed to human and civil rights, environmental sustainability, democracy and equality. It presents ideas mainstream media won't. It's the leading source of local, national and international news analysis and discussion and debate to strengthen the anti-capitalist movement. It exposes the lies and distortions of the power brokers and helps us to better understand the world around us. Good morning, listeners, and a very good morning to you, Jacob. How are you? Yeah, I'm really um, quite good. Um, and Lalita here at the mic. Let's start the program with uh, paying our respects to the elders of the Wurundjeri, uh, Wurundjeri uh, of the Kulin Nation. We are on uh, stolen land. It was never ceded. And that it always was, um, always will be um, Aboriginal land. Correct. Okay. Got a cold, windy morning out there. I think, yeah, it's supposed to get, um, I think we'll probably get warmer. I think it's supposed to get warmer or it might start raining later today. Yeah, we've had some three, three sort of nice or three or four nice days. At the moment, supposedly, it's 14, 14 degrees outside. All right, so um, following on from that acknowledgement country, I think it would be good to talk, um, to have a bit of discussion or just to tell um, listeners um, probably in the past few days, um, Victoria has taken a historical step on the path to treaty, um, which has, you know, passed legislation in the lower house to enter informal negotiations with First Nations people in the state. Um, and so the bill, um, if it is kind of described as the most advanced for its kind of the country, although it still has its serious limitations, um, could, um, will create the framework for the treaty process if it passes into the next hurdle in the upper house. So that, that's an interesting point, actually, because I read a press release yesterday at work where I work, which is the Aboriginal Health Service. Um, the uh, landowners had put out a press release saying that you cannot just refer to us as Aboriginal people. Mm. We have specific clans um, and we have languages, different languages for each clan. You need to refer to us by our clan and by our language, not mm. just lump us um, into a, a, a generic yeah. Well, that's one. That's one of the actual issues that has been raised about the bill previously um, by um, Greens MP Lydia Forbes. Yeah. Um, one I of don't the know, have they made changes in that? I don't think. Oh, well, I'll um, I'll I'll say that that as far as I know, just from reading the Twitter feeds of both Lydia Forbes and Samantha Ratnam, a number yeah. of the, a number of amendments that the Greens push forward had actually passed um, and the Greens have you know reported that they repeated, um, reportedly have said they're quite happy um, with some of the amendments that got through. However, there were a number of amendments that didn't get through. Um, in fact, um, some of them were um, some of them were um, amendments around greater individual recognition, recognition of clans, which yeah. is what Lydia yeah. Fort was pushing for. Yeah. Um, and also Basically, both the lib, the the so-called Labor Party, um, who who were you know who apparently because you know I read it on Facebook actually a Labor Party member was going on about how great um, the state Labor government is for Aboriginal rights, yet they couldn't even appear to vote um, on the 
So the Greens put forward some uh, amendment around the bill that basically acknowledged sovereignty of Aboriginal people and First Nations, and um, and that sovereignty hasn't been ceded. Um, so they didn't even want to... They basically wrote it against that amendment that basically made that acknowledgement. Um, so... What's happening? What's happened now is the bill has passed into the parliament and on the lower house, and now has to go through the upper house, um, which I think might be going through, which might happen at next week. But it still is, I think, probably a step. It's not the it's a step forward, definitely it's a step forward, but yeah, not sure. necessarily. Absolutely, the fact that it's going to be the first state um, to be able to. Uh, Come to a, a some 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 sort of compromise in relation to um, Aboriginal land um, at a legal level. Mm. I'm sure there'll be a lot of just stuff just going some on. other positive things that came out of the bill. There's going to be a 700,000 grant scheme that will be as part of the treaty negotiations. Basically, will be to support traditional owner groups, Aboriginal organisation, and businesses in treaty negotiations. And of course, there'll be pay. Payments of up to ten thousand yeah. dollars um, will fund small con- uh, consultations or treaty circles, yeah. um, while grants of up to a hundred thousand will will be used for more intense and ongoing consultation, as well as research and planning. So that's some of the positive kind of things that came out of the bill. Um, just a just a bit of information as well to report it, that the Liberals I think voted against the treaty legislation. Oh, well, uh, surprise! Uh, surprise. Well, surprise. <laughs> of course, they didn't really <laughs> reveal the true reasons why they voted against it. Um, I mean, the reasons in, enlighten us, enlighten us. The reasoning they gave was they didn't think it was a state issue and it should be addressed on a federal level. Um, but I'm pretty sure the Liberals do actually have a majority in the Parliament in the federal. Um, so I'm surprised if they. If they're so passionate about treaty and the reason why they're so fixed, um, the reason why they didn't want to vote for it in this, on a state level is they think it's a federal issue. Well, how come not a single Liberal MP has put forward, uh, um, a bill on, yeah. on treaty in the federal yeah, parliament? So absolutely. it's all just. Yeah, it's stolen land, full stop. Is it the biggest real estate they've got in a long <laughs> life? But the other interesting thing is the, um, uh, I think it's 100 metres space away from uh, abortion clinics uh, by campaigners or protesters has gone through the New South Wales Parliament this morning. Mm. And the, the, the most, I think, disturbing um, issue in that is that Prue Goward, who is the previous uh, women's um, uh, MP and the current MP, I forget her name, both voted against it. And their reason for that is free speech. How's that? You know, for two women who are supposed to be representing women, voting against women's rights to abortion and, do, and, and uh, doing it without any harassment is supposed to be not um, negative, but it's, it, well, it's not positive, but it is um, an act against free speech. That woman should be sacked from the portfolio as far as I'm concerned. Mm. You know, yeah. it's just appalling. How can they do that? I cannot believe. I'm sure God had my suspicions, but well, the current women's minister, I am well, shocked. It's, it's well, um, it's quite a ridiculous argument, I think, because um, on the issue is that <laughs> you, in terms of this freedom, while people still have their freedom of speech to, um, to express their views on abortion, um, no one's criminalising 
what people think about abortion. That's right. It's not, or, not about free speech at all. Yes. Yeah, so it's it's just it's essentially it's um yeah um they basically want the right to be able to harass mm. women have let people have the right to harass women while they're getting it's abortions. Not even, it's not even that they I, I don't understand their logic because it's protesting either way um, about um. Your views, right? You want to go up there and express just fine, but do it a hundred meters away from where the clinic is, and that is what they're voting on. It's even even the premier said, you know, uh, the Liberal Party premier has said, you know, it's a conscience vote. Labour Party had a binding vote, so it was just appalling to see these two ministers, one ex-minister, one current minister, voting. Against it, but anyway, so much for free speech. Hey, this is democracy at work, people. Mm. Uh, <laughs> All right. Well, there's um, there's actually quite a lot to report in terms of um, what's actually happened in the parliament because it's been a parliament sitting week. <laughs> um, the next thing to report on, and I think this is quite a, a crucial story, mm-hmm. um, is um, the whole. And this is a campaign that we've been covering, and it's one I'm personally involved in um, around the public housing around the public housing sell-offs by oh, the state Labor government. Um, so it has essentially um, passed in Parliament um, the sell-offs. Um, the Greens attempted to put um, put forward a motion that would block the sell-offs, but um, surprise, surprise, the Liberals and the Labor voted against it. And what's interesting is there was actually a public um, there was an inquiry into this public housing renewal program, and some of the findings. Despite, um, though I haven't been able to look at the full document, I'm going to be looking at the document in full um, for a future article. But some of the summary of the findings is it actually basically found that um, the previous redevelopments of public housing, which is in Kensington, um, in Carlton, essentially evolved... Um, or not North... No, 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 no. It's talking about previous sell-offs. They've oh, already okay, happened. Good, um, yeah. So in Carlton and Kensington, it's part of this kind of analysis. And this is what the inquiry was looking at, mm. um, making these kind of comparisons and sort of comparative kind of research. It basically found that the Kensington and Carlton redevelopment basically involved land, um, public land being handed over to private developers. Mm. Mm. Um, it didn't really... Um, it didn't address a significant... It wasn't a significant increase in... Um, public or social housing as the academic term they like to use um, and it didn't actually sufficiently address any real kind of needs in terms of public housing. Although Martin Foley, uh, who must be having some cognitive dissonance saying this, he said even though the, the results of this inquiry were quite damning and were and, you know, the logical outcome of it could be to have a critical kind of take on this whole public housing renewal project. His basic kind of um, thing was Oh, well, the the inquiry has vindicated what I'm doing right now with this public housing renewal program. So this is just, this is disgraceful. And, you know, as the, the public housing waiting list is growing by up to 82,000 and growing by 500 a month, and I, I keep saying it's been 50,000, but apparently it's growing by 500 a month. It grows on a daily And basis. this public housing renewal project essentially doesn't really met, doesn't act, it only is a measly like 10% increase, which actually could, might not be barely increased at all because basically there's going to be a 10% increase, but there'll be, but the redevelopments will have less bedrooms. Um, so say. And the rooms will be smaller. Yeah, that's basically, um, it. So it's like, it's, um, it's a, 
it's a shame that well, it's actually a disgrace that absolute the, disgrace that this passed in Parliament and third richest in the world cannot afford to house their lower social economic layer or eighty mm. ninety thousand people probably have gone to hundred thousand. Mm. And I think a, a one last thing, kind of want to say on the subject is. You know, we have a state budget surplus of probably like 1.6 billion and yet we can't even find the money to build public housing and we have to resort to these very flawed mechanisms of, I say, of handing over private, um, public land to, pri- um, to private developers. The history of this place. And so, and it's a, it's, Essentially, it's a it's a solution it's that a will crime. not. It's absolute mm. crime. I see people sitting on the street begging for money. It's heartbreaking. And how many people can you give money to? You know, the the public walking past must feel the pressure. And this is what the government does. Our taxes are used for funding private enterprise, get bigger and make more. Profit. It's the same pattern everywhere you go. But this is. Directly, it's a bit like body bags coming back from Vietnam in the old days. You see people on the street who are homeless and, and don't have any food. Anyway, so let's go to a break, people, and uh, we'll get our first interview online. And here we go. Welcome back to um, Friday Breakfast, Green Left Radio. And we have our first interview online, Jacob. Yeah, so we have um, Jerry Aoyo. Um, I don't know how. To pron- sorry, I don't know how to pronounce your last name. Um, Gary Aoyo. Is. Is. I. I'm. I shouldn't be pronouncing the A. So we have Gary um, Aoyo. Is. Is in on the line. He is a. Um, he's occupational health and safety officer for the CFMEU, and so we're going to be interviewing him. Um, we want. Um, we're interviewing him about um, basically this. Um, this issue that's arise, um, just reading from the media le- release, it basically says in the headlines here that the CFMU and local residents in Sunshine have banded together to call on the EPA to act on toxic fumes emanating from a, um, from the EGEN, EGEN, EJ, um, Witten Bridge Civil Construction Works. Um, so, Gary, um, what can you tell me about, you know, what's going on here? Um, well, there's not a lot in terms of the... The, um, the levels of toxicity or indeed what even that uh, toxic um, exposure is because we and the residents can't seem to get that information from the contractor, Fulton Hogan. It's all a little bit secret. So unfortunately, um, we're a little bit at a dead end. And so um, what, 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 um, what was the thing that kind of triggered your kind of concerns, you know, especially as an occupational health and safety officer? Oh, look, we, we had numerous calls um, anonymously from workers who'd been working there who had uh, complained about um, having very sore eyes, feeling nauseous, um, going home and vomiting and, and those sorts of things. Um, and um, obviously, we, we obviously wanted to know to know why. Um, so we then knocked on the door, as as you do, to uh, Fulton Hogan and said, look, you know, what 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 are these workers being exposed to? And um, they won't tell us, basically. So they say that they have an environmental management report. Um, we haven't seen it. The workers haven't seen it. Um, I'm not sure even if WorkSafe have seen it. We don't know who it was done by. We, we can't confirm who it was um, done by. We can't confirm when it was done. Um, we don't know the facts because Fulton Hogan have refused to um, release that 
to either ourselves or the workforce. Hmm. And so kind of what has been kind of the response of the CFNU? Like what are you trying to, what is kind of some of the pressure you're trying to put on the contractor to um, essentially give into your, like what are the kind of the basic demands that you're putting forward? Oh, look, mainly just to, for them to be um, open, honest, transparent and um, mature in the sense of let's have a look at the information that you claim to have and let's scrutinise it and analyse it and, and give it a, a full going over, so we, we can we know what we're dealing with. Um, currently, it's it's like I said, it's big, a big secret. Um, they won't tell anybody what the toxins are. Um, they won't tell anybody what levels um, people are being exposed to. Um, it's it's very frustrating because they have an obligation that's both illegal, but I say a a moral and ethical obligation to, to let people have the right and proper information. Um, we say if there's nothing to hide, then let's have a look at all the information that you've got. Now, Fulton Hogan have also said that they're doing their own monitoring on the site. So generally, we get an independent um, qualified hygienist to do that kind of monitoring. Um, so they're at arm, arm's length. There's, there's no bias, disease or otherwise and it's a fully independent um, and scientific analysis, I'd be surprised if Fulton Hogan have the um, qualifications and the expertise to do that type of monitoring. Um, and we don't know what sort of monitoring they're doing, what they're monitoring for. And the other thing, I suppose, when they do get the results, um, how are we then to know whether those results are, in fact, truthful um, and do we trust Fulton Hogan to honestly um, interpret and then relay that information and then apply that information that they may or may not have um, in the best interest of the workers? And currently, as I said, they won't give us any type of information, so why would we trust them to do anything um, on behalf of the workforce? They've got a vested interest in this and, and they're, playing, they're playing hardball, but we say they're also doing things that illegally because they're not forthcoming with the information that they need to. Mm. As we know, it's, it's a legal obligation, Gary, it's Lalita here. Um, yep. Just wondering, do, do, have these workers uh, gone to see the doctors and are you collating information about the signs and symptoms and, you know, is there any, any medical report on these workers who have gone off sick? Well, we don't, I mean... They've gone off, well, they're, they're saying to us, they've, you know, they keep coming out with very sore eyes. Our um, officials went down there and they came back with really sore sore throats. Mm. Um, we've been told workers have been vomiting. The problem is they don't know what they've been exposed to. So in, in terms of just the, the basic scientific slash medical um, information, they, they just haven't got that to go to the doctor and say, look, I've been exposed to X, whatever X is. Mm. Um, the doctor won't be able to to do much um, and that's you know is, is it do these chemicals which these people have been exposed to have they got acute effects are there long-term effects that's right are they are they cancerous mm. um, you know it's just some really basic information but for some reason Fulton Hogan have sort of clam clammed up on my show anybody now I know WorkSafe have I think just been given the report but um, I don't think they've had time to go through a, a thorough and 
you know, comprehensive analysis of that information just just yet as well. So I'll we'll be waiting um, with anticipated breath to see what what happens over the next day or so. But in the meantime, the workers are being exposed to dangerous chemicals or whatever it is. So is the site going to keep operating while we are waiting for the report? Well, that's the magic question. It's hard for us to say, you know, stop because of you're being exposed to whatever. Um, we need WorkSafe to demand um, that Fulton Hogan um, produce whatever information that they have got and let's sit down around the table in a, in a mature adult way, have a look at all the scientific and empirical evidence and let's independently analyse it and then we can go from there. I just want to... One kind of question I sort of have is, is there something... Um, because basically in this media release it, said it makes mention of local residents. Um, just wanted to kind of know of, you know, how is this construction kind of impacting on residents around um, the area and have they come kind of in support of what the CFMU are doing? Oh, look, we've had lots of phone calls from um, residents um, fully supporting the action that, well, the, uh, the stand we're taking because whilst they're not at the very front line, they're... They're, um, they're saying to us that they're having these sort of wafty smells coming over where they, where they live. So they're not particularly um, thrilled with um, the process which has been undertaken by Fulton Hogan. Okay. Um, so, okay, any, I think that's pretty much it. Is there any final comments you'd like to make? Oh, look, I, I just hope Fulton Hogan can see some sense and I hope WorkSafe... Um, can get down there, you know, um, as, as soon as they they can, and and do what they should do, and and do what the OHS legislation requires them to do, and let's let's get that information, you know, on the table so we can make an informed decision and and get the work done in the safest possible way, and that's all we're asking. Mm. Yeah. Let's hope that happens, and and people keep supporting you because it's this is the sort of things that unions always are fighting for, isn't it? And the health and safety issue is so important for workers. Absolutely. Uh, so keep on the good work, guys, and good luck with it, and we'll keep in touch just to see how it's progressing. Thanks, guys. Thank you so much for being available Thanks. so early in the morning. Thanks, Gary. Bye. Bye. Now, I played that track one more time because I wanted to remind um, listeners that Radiothon's coming. And you can ring to support the um, Green Left Weekly Radio. All you have to do is uh, ring 94198377 and mention the program you want your money to go to. And they will take your money. You just have a credit card online and uh, in hand. So that way they can um, charge you, I suppose. And any, any amount above $2 is tax deductible. And there's another way of doing it. If you have the computer, go on to a donation website called Give Now and uh, type in Green Left Weekly Radio and you will get uh, easy option of donating to this program to keep it on air and keep bringing you the alternative news that we have done so for the last three years, I think. And um, we'd like to stay on air and it's fun having to... Uh, prepare programs and give you as much alternative news as possible that you don't hear from uh, the mainstream media these days and uh, expose their lies, as we say in our introduction. Hmm. Okay, now, more news. Um. Yeah, so um, 
probably listeners know that the World Cup is coming up. Oh, please. Next week. Hear me. Um, but um, I'm going to give you a good reason why you should be um, supporting Argentina, um, because they just missed their chance of winning the World Cup last time against Germany. Um, so Palestinians are celebrating the news that Argentina and its star um, Lionel Messi um, will not be playing the friendly um, football match um, that they will they were set to play against Israel in Jerusalem, um, and they basically cancelled in support of um, Palestine. Of course, that was in response. Um, um, that was in response um, to yeah. Sorry, there was just a bit of noise there before. Um, that was in response um, to the kind of protests um, in Argentina and Barcelona calling um, on um, calling on the Argentina national team to cancel its game with um, Israel. And so the respond um, the response um, has been that you know um, uh, um, um, activists in Catalonia, home to Messi's club in Barcelona, hailed the news as a victory. Um, Israel's culture and sports minister, the far right politician Marie, Marie Regov, accused terror groups and BDS, a reference to the grassroots boycott, um, of being behind the cancellation. Expressed the hopes that you know the Argentina would change its mind. Um, of course, you know, there was also the Palestinian Authority aligned head of the Palestinian Football Association that urged on um, Argentina to abandon the match, and they also think this is a great um, news. Yeah, it's good because that's how um, sports, or, sports and uh, economic sanctions and bring, can bring such um, oppressive regimes to, to heal. And that's what happened in South Africa during the apartheid days. Yeah. It wasn't just uh, trade boycotts, but also it was mainly sports boycotts, which, mm. was, which had amazing mm. impact. Yeah, but I think another, another thing, um, this is all in kind of the context of another ongoing campaign, which is to give um, Israel the red card, because Israel is in theory part of the FIFA um, association as a, as a com- um, team, although fortunately they've never really played well enough to even end up being in the World Cup, and they're not in the World Cup. Look at Euro bloody Eurovision. Yeah. That, that's that's um, although although um, the human um, although Saudi Arabia is in the World Cup, and so probably not a team you probably should support, <laughs> especially with their crimes. Um, True. And um, but I think what's also interesting is it also come this sort of news of Argentina cancelling on Israel. You know, comes amidst a kind of um, you know. A bunch of new kind of support um, since Israel's killing of more than a hundred um, during the Great March return. Um, there was like you know this is following the you know the cancellation of um, um, gigs by high-profile performers of um, such as Gilberto Gil and Shakira and dozens of um, independent bands announcing that they will respect the boycott. Um, and of course. Um, and, of course, the grassroots campaign also included a direct appeal to Messi and his teammates from Palestinian football, Mohammed Khalid Obed. And apparently Lionel Messi, although I need to find it if there's an actual source, but I've just seen, been seeing him quoted um, commenting on the boycott, and I think I'm not sure if Lionel Messi is that necessarily that political or that particularly that left-wing, um, but he apparently here was quoted on saying on the boycott, and I thought this was quite a nice quote, that, the, you know, that we're... That you know we're f- we're human beings before footballers, and that's why we're cancelling on Israel while Israel kills Palestinian children. However, just to be clarified, I'm still not sure if that's a confirmed quote from Lionel Messi, um, just because I haven't it wasn't reported in this article necessarily, and it's just been 
I struggled to find it, of course. But okay. it was in a number of articles, so... If they can justify the action by any means, boycotting against Israel is okay by me. Hmm. <laughs> Put it that way. I mean, the thing is, people come from all sorts of political backgrounds, and if they at least can see that this is a massacre against the Palestinians, hmm. and the land has been stolen like the Aboriginal people's land here, then that's good enough for me. It's a good start to to strengthen the the you know opposition to the massacres and, and terrible things that are happening there. Anyway, now going for football, I want to go and talk about youth. Yes, there's there's this this news bits and pieces that have come across on the on the mainstream media about how they should um, when you when you have kids who are in foster care and so on. Um, they ha- they are then abandoned when they reach the age of 18, um, and that means that they end up on the streets. Many of them, uh, legally speaking, end up with no home, no food, no money on the streets. And there's a, a move to allow um, youth stay in care placements till the age of 21. I I'm passionate about this mainly because I I see a lot of um, young Aboriginal kids who are in out-of-home care. And and it's it's no fun to be in the foster care system where you go, you're initially, at least, you go from place to place to place. And that disrupts your whole pattern of development and it's got some very negative impacts on your, your life then and in the future. So this is a great um, you know, move to demand that... Uh, People, young people at the age of 18 um, may think they know it all, but in the end, if they don't have an income, um, they don't have food or shelter. So let's hope our society is a little bit more generous to young people who are in out-of-home care. And there's, there's a, a move going on. The, I guess I can read you some of the stuff from the, the paper where it says, a recent study uh, by Reach Tell, commissioned by the Home Stretch Foundation, found that 76% of Victorians support extending the age of care from 18 to 21. The leaders of the Victoria's major parties must have this evidence, uh, must hear this evidence, hear the anguish and anxiety of young people, and let Victorians know that they will legislate to authorize the option of extending care through to 21 and this actually means that the government has to foot the bills for the, the, the families to care for them and only this morning driving to work I heard there were four youth who went into a 7-Eleven or something in um, a kind of the suburb and, 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 the car, and the young man they arrested was 17 um, we, we talk so much about the crimes of young people and we, we actually hammer them. You know, they're drunk, they're disorderly, they're challenging, the, you know, the norm, they have challenging behavior, uh, undisciplined, and they get drunk and on and on and on and on and on. Yet we don't have any protective um, provisions for them. Um, they really need care till the age of 25, really, because biologically speaking, and this here I'm speaking as a nurse, the frontal lobe, which, which is uh, primary for making decisions, um, doesn't fully grow till the age of 25. So they should have the option of staying in, um, in home care till the age of 25, or at least they are economically stable when they can move out. Um, they should there are provisions to uh, to protect these young people from being exposed to terrible elements, and then you wonder why they get into crime. Mm. Well, I think uh, another another thing I think also that's important to point out is 
I mean, it's actually quite hard for, you know, um, especially for younger people like myself to, to be independent from, um, from our primary carers. And, um, the reason for that is, um, well, well, um, the, the reality is, um, welfare is being cut. It's disgusting. It's not, um, not a living thing. Um, youth allowance is actually probably not livable for most, um, most young people, um, unless you work a job, um, or if you work two jobs, uh, in addition to study, um, especially if you're studying full time and then, you know, and if you're unemployed and there's not much meaningful work around and mm. you struggle to find employment, then the new start is not Appalling. Not, it's a, appalling that it's, it's um, below poverty line. Below the poverty line, um, and of course, then you have to take into account the increased costs of housing, um, how rent is becoming increasingly unaffordable unless you move all the way to a rural area. Of course, that creates <laughs> kind of social isolation for a lot of young people because I think for a lot of young people, yeah. we want to be we want to be living in the suburbs like you know Fitzroy, Carlton, you know, Brunswick, all those kind of suburbs where lots of young people mm. congregate, which. You know, increasingly unaffordable. Um, yeah. with, um, the average rent being over $200 a week. That's nothing. Some, some places charge $300 a week. Or if you go to Secure, yeah. It's just ridiculous. <laughs> and, and, you know, I, I'm, I'm just sick of people just hammering the young people all the time. Youth, unruly, you know, um, and so on. Anyway, let's move on to, um, another. Uh, news. The, um, there's news about um, a, a march by unionists in uh, New South Wales. About 700 members of the Maritime Union of Australia and other unions gathered at Sydney Town Hall on the 29th of May to march to the office of the Fair Work Commission, where a lively rally was held calling for an end to laws limiting the right to strike. And this is an ongoing campaign, of course. So the action was organized around the demand for the right to organize, a right to strike, and the right to live. And it's interesting, you know, um, I was thinking about this the other day, that a right to strike is fundamental to freedom. And that's even recognized by the UN. And there's also a research that was done at the UN that states that, uh, and even the Pope agreed with this, funnily enough, um, that... A country is much more democratic and there's much more human rights uh, where there are strong trade unions. Um, so that's, that's telling as to why uh, trade unions have to be healthy and you have to support their right to organize. Um, it's the workers' right to organize. It's, a trade unions is a nebulous thing. It's made up of members um, mm. and the members have a right to strike. And, and that is a, a fundamental human right in many ways and is recognized internationally. And of course, um, in New South Wales, we've had this um, march against uh, the uh, Fair Work Commission, which is basically seen as a, 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 the employer's um, uh, weapon against workers. It's constant, you know, the usual profit-making cycle that goes on. Anyway, now, should we talk about the refugees, which is... Um, very sad, actually. Um, refugee activists in Melbourne, um, Perth, Canberra, Sydney, and so on, were, were protesting um, in vigils around the country for Salim Kwamin, an elderly Rohingya man who died on Manus Island on the 22nd of May, which is really heartbreaking. Mm. Um, and, of course, um, talking about um, people like this who die in, in captivity, so to speak, and in, in, in imprisonment, it's like death in custody, really, uh, is equivalent to that as far as I'm concerned. Now the, the Burmese government has started attacking the um, Korean people who are 
Christians, so they are getting a lot more airtime on the mainstream media. Mm. I've seen it about three or four times on different news, um, you know, broadcasts. And just thinking, wow, the difference between when Muslims are attacked and when the Christians are attacked is quite marked. But anyway, so the vigils were really um, to remind people about this very sad state of um, refugees who are in captivity and in, in a, basically imprisoned in these um, horrible places like Manus Island. Um, so that was quite, a, hmm. quite an event. I want to talk about maybe some international news. Um, just on, there's an article here on, on, poli- um, on stuff that's happening in Mexican politics. Um, and this is... Mm, Pretty positive news, but the centre-left candidate Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador, um, or AMLO as he's commonly known, has widened his lead and is more now 26 points ahead of his um, nearest rival, the right-wing Richardo Anaya, for the upcoming July 1st presidential elections in Mexico. Um, So, um, one of the (laughs) one of the four interesting things is. As I just said, um, he's been described as centre-left, and so basically some of his basic demands are that we is that the state should have greater intervention into the economy, um, and you know clearly that is for a neoliberal government like Mexico, it is upsetting um, the government and the status quo, um, so much to the point that they're describing him as essentially extremist. Um, that is, you know, get a brin. Um, the country, make the country like Venezuela or Cuba. I mean, if Mexico becomes like Cuba and Venezuela, that would actually be a prog- positive development. Um, but it's also like, or echoing that the, the former, that, you know, Mexico will become like the former Soviet Union. Um, so yeah, that's just some interesting kind of developments that are kind of happening. Um, the polls suggest that he is, um, um, that he that he, that he is um, doing well and he could potentially win the election. Um, and he is, um, in terms of his politics, he is an advocate of the Mexican model pursued during a period of rapid growth during the 1950s and 1970s, when the state played a much bigger um, role in the economy. But of course, um, you know, of course, he does. He's not a complete radical, and in fact, he has moderated his economic rhetoric and said that, you know, basically said that in May that a US 13 billion air um, port project he long posed could be built as a private concession. Um, so there's, but I think it still kind of reflects that, you know, um, that, uh, you know, there is potentially a growing left-wing consciousness in uh, Mexico. Um, meanwhile, the candidate of the ruling institutional revolutionary party, PRI, um, Jos Alator Mende is trembling with probably in third place with 19% of the vote intention. And in Italy, there are women marching as well. And it seems like women actually, there's more and more action around the world by women now. It seems there's a, since the Me Too movement, there has been a rise in um, women demanding their rights. And Italy, uh, let me read some of these things, thousands of, of women uh, marched across Italy on the 26th of May to mark the anniversary of Italy's uh, 194 law, which passed in 1978 and legalized abortion in the country. Marchers fear that the far-right Northern League, which contains many anti-choice militants, um, may choose to threaten, um, may soon threaten the 194 law. So the league stands in the brink of um, forming a government with the five-star 
movement after elections in March. So that's Italy's had Italy has been without a government as such for seven seven months now, and they could not form a government. So this is a result of the inability for Italy to form a proper. I think they've, they've had so many prime ministers. Not funny in the last few years. So this now becomes a threat to any progressive policies and primary one is the, the right to have for women to have abortion so that's an interesting point but talking about elections um, I was thinking as you were talking about Mexico yes in Spain we've got the ousting of um, uh, Rajoy and also that means that now um, the Catalonia and the Basque people's um, Votes count for the supporting of the the current uh, government. I forget the new um, prime minister or president. They keep changing the the titles of these people in Spain. But I will be talking to Dick Nichols, who's our regular correspondent from Spain, soon to um, tell us about how it's going to span. He's giving the country time to what they, what their plans are exactly what they're going to do because it's an interesting coalition because now because of the coalition um, the rights of the Catalonians has to be respected um, so the Basque people too uh, recently they had a bit of uprising there too and uh, you know it's it's um, so a, a very fluid situation so let's catch up on that but um, that's a good victory for the Catalonians for now anyway Hmm. Um, just so, just a bit of a um, report on some news in France. Um, workers, pr- um, are pr- uh, you know, thousands of people have been flooding the street, flood the streets on on of France on May 27th to protest against Emmanuel Macron's economic reforms. Um, you know, and Jean-Luc Mélenchon said, you know, in the name of the poor, the humiliated, and the homeless and the jobless, we are telling you enough of enough of this. Enough is enough. And of course, um, marches in the trade union organised events, uh, event descended on the Bastille to show their opposition, um, to the changes. Protests were held across 160 locations in the city, including Paris, Marseille, and Nordes, Nantes. Um, police estimated that, um, 21,000 people took part in the Paris protests, while unions put the number at 80,000. And of course, um, Macron's kind of argument is that, you know, these reforms are meant to strengthen, um, France's global competitiveness, adding that the protests will not, um, will not block the country and that he's basically, you know, saying that, you know, doesn't matter how many times I protest, um, no disorder will stop me. Um, <laughs> I think it sort of just said something about Macron because Emmanuel Macron kind of has this he's sort of really sense of um, this sort of technocratic arrogance. He gives off this kind of impression that, you know, for a lot of these capitalist leaders um, that, you know, we're the experts, we know better, ordinary people don't shouldn't have a say in society we can do things on behalf of you. Yes. We have the right Very ideas. patronising attitude. And Tudor, for all his niceness in Canada, has a similar attitude, I'm afraid. But anyway, mm. Trudeau. Anyway, all right. Oh, Justin Trudeau, yes, um, yeah. that's another. <laughs> yeah. So are you finished with that? Um, okay, so we are moving on to more news. And I thought we'll just have a brief look at Afrin because there seems to be waning interest in what's going on, the, the human tragedy that's happening up there. And we are looking, looking at Turkey um, that's planning to build on its successful occupation of Afrin to expand its power with a new round of ethnic cleansing. 
um, so we know that the city was um, the city's fall was inevitable. Um, Afrin was isolated from or is isolated from Kobane and Jazeera, the other predominantly Kurdish cantons to the east, and the Kurdish people have been even supported by the U.S. in, in an attempt to abolish the um, the ISIS uh, f- uh, phenomena, and that they have done that pretty well, um, and therefore the Kurdish people are seen to be. Uh, fierce defenders of um, the people. So the Kurdish gambled unsuccessfully on um, international support against the illegal invasion, Uh, but the gamble was not reasonable. Um, The invasion was patently illegal. Um, The world also owes the Syrian Kurds a debt um, of gratitude for their sacrifices in defending ISIS, of course. So, Afrin today presents a dismal picture of unnecessary suffering. <coughs> Excuse me. Hundreds of thousands of um, people um, have been, well, city, uh, of, of people have, have fled the invaders. At least 137 residents um, are still you know, internally displaced and face an uncertain future without adequate food and shelter. So this story of Afrin goes on. And in the meantime, the Turkish um, prime minister, isn't he? Um, Erdogan. Erdogan. <laughs> Erdogan. He said that he has repeatedly claimed that Turkey has a right to expand beyond its current boundaries, which was set in 1923 by the Treaty of Lausanne. Um, he declared in a 2016 speech at Iraq, Bosnia and Syria, formerly parts of the Ottoman Empire. So this man is trying to be the czar of the Middle East, basically. Yeah. Well, they have a right to um, expand their borders, presumably, as long as you can get rid of, get rid of Kurds in the process. <laughs> I know, and, and it, it's, it just amazes me that, you know, borders have been drawn and redrawn and redrawn and redrawn over the, the, the course of history. And this guy is talking about the Ottoman Empire. He thinks he is one of the Ottoman kings, probably, or whatever they call them. Um, what do they call them in the Middle East? Um, anyway, it's the equivalent of a king, whatever it is. So the Turkish public, however, only know only what Erdogan wants them to know about the invasion. But there is uh, 70 to 80% of, um, according to one poll anyway, um, 70 to 80% of Turkish population support the African invasion, although how accurate this can be is in... Um, in how being the authoritarian, even fa- very um, f- fascist state, um, is debatable. So Erdogan is going ahead, um, declaring public support as if he's got no one there to stop him, given that um, people see, all the, all the powers, the major powers in the world see uh, Turkey as a bit of an um, investment in trying to fight ISIS as well, whereas they don't seem to recognize, while using them, they don't seem to want to give the Kurds a right to their own nation, which, which was divided into four. Um, a, another one of the international wonderful agreements uh, they have done like they did in uh, Palestine as well. And so this, the battle that goes on, and we cannot forget the people of Afrin who are suffering, children, old people, and so on. It's just, just appalling. And um, so we go on to the next news item. All right, so I kind of want to talk about um, just <laughs> this is just a bit of a campaign that's happening. You know, in fact, we probably should try and do an uh, interview about this um, whole campaign, just to get a bit of a story from start to finish. Um, I'm in contact with one of the leaders of this campaign back in Sydney, but this is basically around um, 
uh, a campaign in opposition to the West Cornex. Um, oh, yes. So um, just a bit of an update um, in the latest Green Left Weekly is that the activist group um, West Cornex Public Transport Not um, Motorways has called for a halt to the tender and construction process for West Cornex, including the accusation of all home of homes and businesses for all stages of the project, and demand the um, demanded the government, the New South Wales government, conduct a full parliamentary inquiry into West Connex. Um, you know, when the West they they say here that you know when the West Connex toll road was first proposed, um, it was supposed to cost ten billion. Um, within f- a few years, you know, it, it suddenly blew up to fifteen million, um, then seventeen million, and then a further extensions were announced. Um, of course, this um, this could bring it to these further extensions could bring it to forty five um, billion. Um, so yeah, so it's just. Um, um, now that um, what's kind of happening is now that you know the the all these activist groups are now um, circulating a petition that reflects the growing public opposition to the monstrous toll road complex. Um, the petition brings to the attention of the government of New South Wales the risk of proceeding uh, of um, with the West Connex toll when community co- consultation process has been inadequate. Transport planners and financial analysts alike increasingly condemn the project as incapable of um, addressing Sydney's transport problems. And Australia in international research indicates West Connects will fail to bring the benefits or revenues promised. Um, and, you know, they, it says West Connects will irreparably damage thriving inner city communities, subject densely populated areas to increases in air pollution, force scores of family out of their homes and businesses, impose unaffordable tolls on commuters from Western Sydney and expose New South Wales taxpayers to f- huge financial risk and ongoing costs when the toll road fails. Um, meanwhile, the coalition government is reported to be sticking with its July-August date for the privatisation of West Connects, despite the Australian Com- Competition Com- Consumer Commission raising concerns that the front-runner for buying the toll road, Transurban, is fairly close to monopoly over the industry in both New South Wales and Queensland. Um, so that's kind of what's sort of the latest kind of developments, but I think we'll probably um, flag that as a potential interview we should do for possibly the week after the Radiothon, um, to give a bit of insight in the campaign and sort of give a bit of a story because it has been, I think it's been going on for quite a long time actually, probably been going on since 2016 or 2015, possibly going back, yeah. going back all the way back then. Actually, oh, pretty sure it was 2015 because I'm, I was in Sydney for that, um, for a month in December and, or, yeah, month in November. Doesn't matter. And yeah, there were posters, there were posters around, um, of shops supposing the West Connect. So it's been going on for quite a long time. Yeah, it's quite interesting because I did an interview, I didn't do an interview, the, um, the radical, um, not radical economy, there's another name for it. Um, pardon me for not remembering your program, um, uh, but it's um, about the economy, rat, rat bag economy, I think. Renegade economy. Renegade economy, that's the one. I had to go through the process. Anyway, he interviewed <coughs> a um, uh, another renegade economist who, who writes, uh, who's been writing for, um, you know, the left as such and, and radically um, against the sort of projects. And one of the things, one of the pieces of information that came out was that uh, Transurban had been making had, the last financial year made like 230% profit mm. uh, with the tolls and, and, and all the concessions they get from the government and so on. And now that same company is now being looked at, you know, the um, Northern Link they're trying to build here. 
the uh, other major road project here. That's a company that may get the the uh, contract if things go according to their plans. Mm. So we're going to give a, a massive profit to this company. Like it probably go up to four five hundred percent. Who knows? But that is the uh, gouging of profits these companies have at the expense of the environment at the expense of um, people's homes and so on. And, and we did, we did do, do a little bit of an uh, article on that too. But anyway, um, uh, an update is certainly worthwhile. Welcome back, listeners, to Green Left uh, Radio and Friday Breakfast this morning. Um, now, we um, have a number of announcements. Let me start off with uh, one by LASNAT, which is the Latin American Solidarity Group. Um, they are having a forum of uh, titled, in fact, it's a series of workshops on colonization and decolonization from Latin America to the Pacific. And that's happening on the um, 10th, 10th, 17th and 24th of June. Um, so it's about to start. If you're interested in these topics, um, I'll give the numbers to ring is Marisol Salinas, 0432-952-018. Uh, if you want to email them, it's lasnet, L-A-S-N-E-T, dot solidarity at gmail.com. So they look like, look like a really interesting um, forum to go to. And there's all, they're also having an international campaign for freedom for all uh, Mapuche political prisoners. And if you ring that number or email that uh, address I gave you, you will get all the information on those two things. Yeah. Oh, I just want to um, talk about a few, um, give a number of events that are coming up. So on Saturday, June the 9th, um, at 11 a.m. Um, outside the Parliament House, there will be um, a rally organised by the, I think, the Animal Justice Party against um, live exports. Um, so they'll be at 11 a.m. at the State Library. Uh, I think live exports is quite a important um, issue and it's probably also going to attract um, probably a broader crowd than some of the other animal rights um, rallies. Now, the Saturday, June, well, it's this Saturday that we have Rally Our Quads, a day for Palestine at 1.30pm at the State Library. Um, on Wednesday, June the 13th, um, there'll be a film screening, Border Politics plus Q&A with Julian Burnside, um, which is at 7pm at the Cinema Nova. Um, on Thursday, June the 14th, there'll be film screening, A New Economy, um, at 7pm at the, um, at 8 Ballarat Street in Yarraville, presented by Get Up, Melbourne Inner West Action Group. And also next Friday is going to be our radio phone. <laughs> <laughs> we need money to keep going. <laughs> yeah, so prepare, get your money ready, um, and yeah, please donate to our program. And, um, and be how do you donate? It's worthwhile telling as well, Jacob. Uh, go to go to the website called Give Now. Type in Green Left Weekly Radio, and you'll get a um, prompts to follow through, and you can donate. And as as you know, you know uh, we have said repeatedly, anything over two dollars is tax deductible. Or you can ring in nine four one nine eight three double seven at any time to donate, and, and you can use a credit card. That'll be easy enough to do so. <clears throat> now you can come here, two or three CR. Mm. I forget the address, but anyway, we're here. On, on um, Smith Street was the end of um, the, the, that street, but anyway, I'll get the number in a minute. All right, so and the other things that are coming up um, next Friday is there'll be a Stop Adani protest um, at 695 Burke Street in Camberwell. Um, there'll be frame s- film screening, um, Shark 
article, please tell us the time, um, which is organised by Refugee Action Collective. Um, and on Saturday, June the 16th, will be the Green Left Weekly Annual Comedy Debate. Um, will Trump tweet us into oblivion, featuring MC Ron Contact with Sean Bedlam. And you can book your tickets at trybooking.com. Except I forgot. Dot com dot it's it's just trybooking.com. Oh no no you need the the actual URL but um never mind. Uh, if, but you, if you type in try, try booking it'll come up on the on in Google anyway. Yep. Anyway, there'll also be a pill testing fundraiser at eight PM at the Gasometer Hotel, um at four oh four Smith Street. Um there is a eight four Smith Street. <laughs> yep, for um it says it's organized by Victorian Socialists, but it's actually um being organized by grassroots gatherings, um but being supported by Victorian Socialists. Um, on Tuesday, June the 19th, there'll be a shri- trivia night, a fundraiser for the SO slash UGL, forward slash UGL Longford workers, um, at 6.30pm at the AMWU office at 251 Queensbury Street, and it's hosted by Workers Solidarity. And let me fill in a few more details about that. The SO workers have been now, um, on, well, no, in another week, it'll be a whole year that they have been uh, um, on strike and their gas maintenance workers who have been fighting to stop massive um, pay cuts. It's like the C- CUB camp- campaign you saw a couple of years ago and an anti-family um, roster plus a massive cut, I think it was 60% of um, cut in their wages to, to be sacked and re-employed in the same jobs for 60, 60, 60% less money. So if you um, want to support them, uh, do come to the trivia night at um, 20, 251 Queensbury Street, Carlton, which is the um, AMW office. And, of course, you can find them on Facebook. You can also donate on Facebook. They've got um, the details there. Now, going back to donating to 3CR for this program, the number here, if you want to come and give personally, is 21 Smith Street, Victoria. And um, just... Just getting ready for the next interview while I'm doing this. Okay, so let's, so let's move on to the next lot of announcements. Um, 21st of June, which is a Thursday, Refugee Film Festival Screening, Human Flow. is directed by the celebrated artist Ai Weiwei, um, An Unforgettable Journey into Our Current Global Refugee Crisis. And that's at Cinema Nova um, at 6.30 p.m., 380 Ligon Street, Carlton. Uh, same day, there's another film screening, A Mighty Force, 8.30, um, at the Melbourne Buddhist Centre, uh, 23 John Street, Brunswick East. Not sure who's actually organising that. I think the, the Adani people, the Adani group is organising that. Or anti-Adani, rather. So 27th of June... We've got a Welcome Refugee, uh, Refugee Week project, Projection and Speak Out, 6 p.m. National Gallery of Victoria, 180 St. Kilda Road, South Bank. So that is also available on Facebook, which is called Welcome Refugees. 24th of June, which is a Sunday, Rally in March, Unite to Stop the Right, um, 11 a.m. Trades Hall, um, corner of Ligon and Victoria. July 6th is NADOC Week. So all um, activities around NADOC will begin. There will be a lot of Aboriginal community in the city. They will be um, attending a variety of events. So if you want to join the march, which we traditionally have 
on that Friday of that week, um, which is the 6th of July, the um, at the Victorian um, Health Service where I work, it starts about 10.30, 10, 10.30, but if you want to get a hold of T-shirts that um, is traditionally um, sold at that time, they uh, come in early. It's 186 Nicholson Street, and we march down to Burke Street. July 7th conference, Australian Refugee Action Network at the ANMF building, 535 Elizabeth Street. Um, and July 7th, again, or Wednesday, uh, 7th to Wednesday the 11th, uh, Conference Students of Sustainability, and that's also available on Facebook. And the 21st of July, we are five years too many. It's a rally. Five years too many. Bring them home. The July will mark five years since a PNG solution was announced. Five years of limbo in offshore detention hellholes. Two years since Manus was declared illegal. Um, over one and a half years, the U.S. refugee deal announced 10 deaths offshore. So this is organized by the Refugee Action Collective, and you've got a passion around this issue. That's where you could be. And the last one is um, Castle Maine announcement, July 20, uh, sorry, June 29th, which is going back a bit. Uh, it's a community tour, 8 p.m., the Theatre Royal, 30 Hargreaves Street, Castle Maine, if you're interested to go up country, to enjoy the country air. So we have online... Dean Lombard, who is from the Alternative Technology Association, to talk about something really important and positive, actually. Um, So let's get a hold of Dean. Good morning, Dean. Hi. How are you? Yeah, I'm well. How are you? Good, thanks. And uh, Dean Lombard is um, the co-author of the ATA Energy um, Analysis, uh, with two other um, uh, contributors. So, we have Dean online again. Sorry about that, listeners. Yes, Dean, can you... Um, yeah, hi, can you hear me now? Yes, yep. we can hear Perfect. you better now. Okay, right. you were in the middle of telling us why you commissioned or you wrote this report. Yeah, basically, to, we wanted to look at the relative cost of gas and electricity as a fuel in your house for heating hot water... And that's because a lot of people believe that gas is cheaper, but we wanted to see if that's really the case because electric appliances, the technology's advanced a lot and they're a lot more efficient now. Okay. So, yeah, so we basically looked at a scenario. If you had a house and you, your, say your gas heater broke down and you need to replace it, are you better off financially by replacing it with another gas heater or by replacing it with an equivalent modern electric heating system? So that's interesting because you, you, you're claiming that they can save between nine and 16,000 over 10 years if they establish an all-electric um, power supply for their house at 5-kilowatt solar system rather than gas-electric with no solar, yeah? That's right, and that was the other part of research. As well as looking at when you had to change an appliance, we looked at what, what about for a new home? Are you better off having everything electric or having both gas and electricity being headed to a new home. And that was where the biggest financial benefit was for a new home when you're setting everything up from scratch. It's like you're way better off having electric split system, air conditions for heating and cooling, um, heat pump hot water systems for hot water and induction, electric cooking, because you, you spend far less in ongoing energy bills than if you have gas as well as electricity. Hmm. And part of that is because each, each fuel, as well as having the usage cost, it has that fixed cost, you know, the fixed cost that you pay 
with each bill, it's usually about a dollar a day for most bills. So when you have gas and electricity, you've got two fixed costs as well as a energy usage cost that you pay. Hmm. And um, the the I I guess the downside of these things is that uh, there are a couple of things. One is that. Um, the batteries are very expensive at this stage, the storage batteries, because you can't run on solar in winter. You can to a certain yep. extent, but you, you need uh, the battery backup, backup, and you may need multiple batteries given the amount of sun we get in winter. Um, that's, uh, you want to speak to that first? Yeah, well, we're not really talking about being off the electricity grid. We're talking about having solar on your house, but still being connected to the electricity grid. So you use your solar power for anything that any energy that you use during the day but um in the evening you're still using electricity for the electricity grid and that works and that works out much better without batteries actually because any electricity that your solar generates that you don't use you still get paid a feeding tariff for and that can actually offset a lot of the rest of your bill yeah but the feeding tariff is very low these days and especially in Victoria. I don't, know, I don't know about the other states but here it's like what five cents or something well no it's about 10 cents which is pretty similar in most other states um, and the thing is, with a modern, because so, the cost of solar systems is so much cheaper that if you are putting a new solar system on a house, um, even if you hardly use any of the electricity it generates, and we've done this modelling, even if you only use a bit of it and you send most of it to the grid for the feeding tariff, you can still pay back the cost of the system in a few years. Hmm. And um, the uh, the outlay usually is, is used to be quite expensive. I know I put. Uh, solar on my roof uh, many years ago it, it was like 10 or 12,000 you know I almost used up all my savings trying to put it on um, now yeah. I get about two bills a year which is amazing and because I use the um, the payback and I was on a higher tariff payback and I remain on that I think now for a little bit longer um, yeah. was much higher but now the the tariff being so so low will the will the rebate the tariff rebate into um, or, or I guess it's a bit of a buffering because you, you, when the grid, when you feed into the grid, you get a certain amount of money. Do you think that is enough to pay off people's everyday use um, with the establishment of five kilowatt of um, solar panels? Yeah, look, it is now because it's for, the, for new systems because the cost of new systems is much cheaper than they were even a few years ago. I mean, what, um, what, what roughly is the outlay for people who want to do that? Well, you know, that solar systems come in different sizes and it's based on kilowatts. That's how, how much capacity the system oh, okay. has. Hmm. An average size system nowadays is about five kilowatts. And the cost of a solar system now is about $1,000 a kilowatt. So a typical system costs about $5,000, hmm. which is a lot less, right, than it used to be. Yeah. In the meantime, retail electricity prices have gone up pretty high compared to what they were, you know, five or ten years ago. And the feed-in tariff, as, although it's not as high as it was in those early years, it's still a pretty good price is still about, you know, a third to a bit more than a third the retail cost of electricity. Mm. Okay, this so, this so yeah, we, we do we do payback analysis and we find that for most people in most situations the payback in years yep. is between about four to five in the best cases to about seven or eight in the longest cases. So it's pretty good pretty good payback. Mm, sounds good. But this report was commissioned by the Energy Consumers Australia. And um, they are actually um, trying to not just educate uh, people, but also um, trying to call for the government to implement uh, something along your recommendations of um, electrifying all new homes. Is that right? Yeah, well, look, Energy Consumers Australia funded the report. They fund research and advocacy in energy. So I guess 
the recommendations are our recommendations rather than theirs specifically. Okay. Um, and yeah, we're, 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 we're saying a few things. We're sort of saying, you know, it's so much more cost effective for new homes to be all electric. We should, people need to know this and be empowered to sort of, you know, ask about it when, if, when they're buying or building a new home. Because often people don't really think about it and often builders will just automatically connect homes to gas if it's around. So part of what we're saying is people need to be aware to do this. So when they're building or buying a new home, also people need to be aware of this when they're replacing appliances because people will automatically just go to replace the appliance with whatever the old one was, right? Mm. I was a gas heater, I put another gas heater. Especially when people, and especially in Victoria, we always think gas is way cheaper. Yes. <laughs> it's not the case anymore, so people need, need to know, you know. Mm. People, and people might still want to choose gas because they like it. That's fine, but... It's good for people to know that there's an economic aspect to it and how the numbers stack up. And from personal experience, I know some some companies who manage all the bills for the the power companies um, can use the rebate to pay the gas bill too. And I have that done in my in, in my case. But the ga- the the gas the infrastructure for both gas and electricity that's going to be a fierce competition between gas and, and electricity, isn't it? So I say that again. There will be a fierce competition between the, infra, uh, the gas and electricity companies in relation to the sort of infrastructure that is laid out where new homes are being built, especially in the outer suburbs. Yeah, sort of. To a, yeah, there is to a point. I mean, the, the, the networks, the big networks, tend to own gas and electricity infrastructure, so the, net, the networks certainly tend to support both. A lot of the retailers uh, retail both, so they're sort of happy for people to have both, I guess, in a lot of ways. Hmm. Yeah, yeah, but there's so. another interesting aspect, infrastructure-wise, and this is actually one of our other recommendations. As it becomes, as people realise that it's much cheaper to go all electric, yep. more and more people who can will, right? Hmm. People buying new homes, people replacing appliances or doing big renovations, and unfortunately, there's a whole chunk of people who can't really make these sort of choices. People who rent. People who are on lower incomes and can't really afford to replace appliances, etc. And one of our concerns is that. If more and more and more people leave the gas network, then fewer people will be left paying for the whole cost of the network. So that's, I guess, another one of our concerns, and that's why we've recommended that governments really look into this and that networks look into this and just make sure that they manage that transition. Okay. So for people who want to look at the report, it's at the um, all the w's.ata.org.au, isn't it? You're going to Correct. that website. Yeah, on their website. Yeah. Yep. So the report's there for people to examine the details of your report. Thank you so much, Dean. That's informative and, and certainly uh, another contributor to, to saving the environment, I guess, mm. the way things go, and, and money for people too. Um, so thank you so much. Thanks very much. Okay, bye. Okay, so we are coming to the end of the program, listeners. Um, um, do you have anything to say before we um, sign off and let the environment people come in? Well, we still probably have seven minutes left on our program. Um, I don't. The main issue, I think, we exhausted through quite a lot of news. Um, yeah. Probably want um, one thing to sort of flag is um, it's important, I think, to follow the developments that are happening around public housing and um, the treaty, which should there should be some more stuff happening, I guess, um, next week. Um, but yeah, it would probably worth be playing a song to close up the program, and then we can end.
from there because we yeah have like seven minutes left. Yeah, that's okay. But the the other thing is also that not just housing, the refugee issue, issue is really really vital. More and more people are dying, and it's um, you know important that we encourage people to try and attend these rallies to boost the numbers. Um, the uh, the the one that we mentioned on the announcements was really good, um, or in the news um, earlier on. Okay, so. Let's go with uh, my one of my favorite singers, uh, Dr. J. Yunapingo, hmm. to wrap up the program. Um, so I hope you enjoyed the program, listeners. And if you did, um, please donate. It is Radiothon next week. Uh, once again, the number to ring is 94198377. Um, you, you can donate with your credit card or... Uh, Debit card or whatever, and also you can come to 21 Smith Street where we are, and you can donate in person. And the other um, thing is that you can also donate via a website called Give Now, and you just type in Green Left Weekly Radio, and you will have a donating um, site that comes up, and you can donate whatever. And anything above $2 is tax deductible. To keep us on air, we are fighting to keep our program on air. And, of course, you know this is an annual thing. And we'll be grateful for all the monies received. And hope you really enjoyed the program. And thanks to uh, Dean Lombard from the ATA and, of course, Gary S. from the CFMEU uh, in relation to the health and safety issues that um, workers are facing where he is. So let's go out with Dr. Yunipingu today and have a 